We'll get started in 30 seconds, about 30 seconds. 30 seconds? Has it been 30 seconds? Yeah, okay. So today we're tackling the spiritual gift of tongues, um, of tongues. So before we get started, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump right in. We have a lot of info to get through, so let, let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and that it, it reveals what, what we need to know for, for life and, and godliness, for our salvation and our sanctification. And so, Lord, we do ask that we would submit our lives under the, the truth contained in your word. And I pray that as we come to areas that are, are challenging to understand or if there's a diversity of opinion that we would that we would be charitable to those we disagree with um, but that we would have firm convictions on what we believe to be true in your word so I ask that as we open up your word today to, to see what the gift of tongues is what the nature and function of the gift is that we would that you would keep us from error and that you would cause us to love what is true and what is right in your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So again, we're going to dive into what the New Testament teaches regarding the gift of tongues. And this spiritual gift, even probably more than the gift we covered last week, prophecy, is even more debated than, than probably any spiritual gift um, we've covered so far. So just to start, I'm going to open it up. Why do, you think, why do you think that is? Why do you think this is such a controversial topic, this gift in particular? It seems strange. Yeah, I think that that's very well possible. I think to to Bonnie's point, she really summed it up quite well of pretty much my whole introduction here. <laughs> no, it's great um, that that there's a disagreement on what actually what is the gift of tongues. There seems to be a difference in what the modern usage is and to what we see specifically in Acts. Yeah, I think that is key. That is exactly right. That for charismatic for charismatic people, this this experience they undergo, the spiritual experience of speaking in tongues is kind of the pinnacle of their spiritual life. So if you attack that or or even charitably say maybe perhaps what is occurring isn't New Testament tongues. That is a, an offense to their, to their walk, which makes this conversation pretty difficult to have. Um, that is true. And we're going to deal more with the tongues as prayer language next week. Um, but this week, we are going to try to figure out what, what's... What is the difficulty in this in this conversation to figure out the what 
exactly the nature of the gift of tongues is in the New Testament. So much like last week, I'm going to be making the case for what Schreiner and his book and what I'm convinced the gift of tongues is, but I don't want you to conclude that it's an easy, that it's an easy interpretive decision. If this was easy to interpret, then there wouldn't be so much disagreement amongst faithful Christian scholars and theologians throughout the years on what the gift of tongues is. J.I. Packer, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, which we've mentioned before in this study, he helpfully characterizes the difficulty of pinning down what the gift of the tongues is. He writes, and this is Packer, on the nature of New Testament tongues, much is obscure and must remain so. Various interpretations on key points are viable, and perhaps the worst error in handling the relevant passages is to claim or insinuate that perfect clarity or certainty marks one's view. So I, I really enjoy Packer's humility in this statement, and he has been criticized, especially on this topic of being naive or, or too charitable towards charismatics or those who think tongues are active, which I think Schreiner in his book, he, he gets the same criticism. But I appreciate this disposition because in my study this week, I can tell you at least personally for me, it, it is not an easy interpretive decision. Particularly on the question of what exactly the gift of tongues is in the New Testament. So here's the big question we're going to tackle today. Are tongues known languages that an individual who has no knowledge of that language gets the supernatural ability to speak, or are tongues unknown languages that sound like random linguistic utterances? So there's a diversity of opinions across the Christian world and in the tighter evangelical world, and this can be highlighted by just looking at the diversity of thoughts in the Reformed world. So Packer cites the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper as an individual who believed that all accounts of tongues in the New Testament were unintelligible languages or not human languages. Charles Hodge, who is um, the 19th century Reformed Presbyterian theologian, and his colleague B.B. Warfield believed all cases of New Testament tongues were all known human languages, supernaturally given to people. So modern Presbyterians such as John Frame and Vern Poitras, who I think would consider themselves cessationists of some type, believe tongues could be a mixture of both known human languages and unknown ecstatic utterances that resemble human language but have some sort of cognitive meaning. So probably unsurprisingly, for those of you here last week, the, the continuationists Wayne Grudem and D.A. Carson falls into this camp. So the point for us that I'm trying to illustrate is that 
it is very difficult to, to pin down exactly what the nature of the New Testament spiritual gift of tongues is. Now, having said that, I'm going to be giving a position, um, and the whole point of our lesson today is I'm going to be giving you guys an argument from Shriner's book on what the gift of tongues is. So the argument I'm going to be presenting, which is in line with Warfield, Hodges, and what I would call the classical Reformed theology, and that argument is that the gift of tongues, as we see it in the New Testament, is only involving known human languages. <coughs> Not ecstatic, unintelligible utterances, or what we commonly think of tongues in the charismatic and Pentecostal sense. But I do want to, like last week, present um, some arguments initially that disagree with Schreiner so you can get a taste of the, of the nature of the disagreements. And I always think it's helpful to familiarize ourselves with the diversity of opinions. And if nothing else, I find it fascinating, and hopefully, hopefully you guys do as well. And so I'm going to start by briefly analyzing some charismatic arguments that the gift of tongues are ecstatic utterances. And I'm getting this from the book here. It's uh, by D.A. Carson. It's called Showing the Spirit. You can get this in our library. It's very good. I highly recommend. Which, if you remember, I disagree with Carson on his conclusions regarding tongues. But he does faithfully present a lot of the different arguments of the church today. So I think it's a great resource if you want to read. So one of the things that makes this discussion difficult, at least with charismatics, is that they would actually probably affirm that the modern tongue-speaking they experience is known languages. Carson argues that most charismatics are persuaded that their unintelligible utterances are in fact real languages because they actually, or they believe they actually convey meaning even if humans can't understand it. This is because they take a very literalistic interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13.1, which states, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. And so they cling to that phrase, tongues of angels, and conclude that there's a type of heavenly language that sounds like perhaps gibberish to humans. It, it sounds like unintelligible, utterances. And we're going to come back to, in a bit to this verse to see how charismatics, I think, wrongly interpret this verse. But for our purposes now, some charismatics would conclude that, that yes, what is occurring in the New Testament is known languages. It just could be heavenly languages, languages that humans don't understand. Other charismatic, which Carson highlights, the, the charismatic scholar Cyril Williams argue that what we see with the gift of tongues in the New Testament are not so-called real languages, but he argues tongues are an intense ecstatic, and by ecstatic we mean trance-like experiences rooted in an ecstasy or, or spiritual elation, but ecstatic utterances and that these scholars view it more kind of like an a experience of prayer or personal devotion. And Carson helpfully gives William's argument 
which is primarily an argument against the meaning of the Greek word tongue, which the Greek for tongue is glossa or glossa. I'm going to say glossa because I'm from Texas. But most scholars in Greek dictionaries agree that the word glossa always refers to either the, the organ in one's mouth, the tongue, or human languages. So think of our English concept of mother tongue. What does that mean? Our, our native language. So in the New Testament, glossa is the Greek word that we translate as the gift of tongues. So some conclude just from this word study alone, and I, I honestly find this pretty convincing, um, but we conclude that the Greek word for tongues always means a human language, and that kind of ends the debate. Um, Michael Horton, in his book on the Holy Spirit, which is, which is really good, um, he even goes as far to say that the, that the Greek language, because of the pagan Greek religion, had a category for spiritual ecstatic utterances in the New Testament era, or what he calls trance-like speaking of unintelligible sounds. And that, that word could have been employed by the New Testament authors. But the New Testament authors used the word glossa, referring to known languages. So having said all that, back to the charismatic scholar Cyril Williams. He just, he, he, he flat out rejects that word study of that word glossa. He writes, and this is his quote, glossa can indicate the physical or organ, known languages, dialects or subdialects, but also the incoherent utterance of certain forms of spiritual fervency. So Williams doesn't actually think tongue speaking has no meaning because it is incoherent or there would be no need for an interpretation. Rather, he's arguing tongues is an expression of deep feelings and inarticulate thoughts issuing out of the speaker's deep experience of the spirit but not conveyed in propositional terms. Does that make sense? Some, it's like a, a very personal, supernatural spiritual experience where you have these unintelligible utterances that's not conveyed in propositional language. And Carson points out this is how many, even non-charismatic non, um, continuationist scholars, interpret tongues speaking specifically in the book of 1 Corinthians. But Williams, the, the charismatic scholar, goes further to say it wasn't even known languages when tongues is described in Acts 2 at Pentecost, which that is far more controversial. And we'll, we'll also come back to look at this text in detail later on. But Carson, who remember, he, he's not a cessationist. He remains unconvinced by William's argument, primarily because what he sees in Acts and 1 Corinthians has to be a known language in some sense. And we're going to get to Carson's position in a second, but Carson also points out that he's not aware of any advanced word study or Greek lexicon that denotes glossa, meaning non-cognitive utterances. It's kind of a, a fanciful um, definition that Williams gives. 
Another argument that tongues are unintelligible utterances comes from a scholar named Jack McGorman, Jack McGorman, a charismatic, who argues that tongues in 1 Corinthians must be, this is key, must be unintelligible ecstatic utterances that needs interpretation, or else, and this is his argument, or else 1 Corinthians 14 makes completely no sense. And again, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 14. But McGorman argues the only way that text makes sense is if Paul isn't talking about known human languages. But I think Carson helpfully points out, really 1 Corinthians 14, as we'll see, makes sense, provided only that the tongue speaker doesn't know what he or she is saying which is the case if it is a known human language the tongue, the tongue speaker has no knowledge of. So it's not, it's not necessary that it, that it be an unintelligible language-like utterance. All that's necessary is that in 1 Corinthians 14, the, the, the person who is speaking the tongue doesn't understand or doesn't know the language that God has given them to speak. And there are other types of these arguments, but for time's sake, I'm going to move on to D.A. Carson's argument, or at least the one he presents in his book, because I find it very fascinating. So Carson Carson would affirm with Schreiner that tongues in the New Testament is referring to a communicable known language, which he means primarily that tongues, languages, are cognitive the spiritual gift. In other words, he thinks tongues are intelligible. But he does something interesting to affirm his belief that what many experience today as unrecognizable ecstatic utterances could be communicable coded language. That's key language. He thinks communicable coded language. And Carson is relying heavily upon the Presbyterian scholar Vern Poitras. Poitras and Carson argue that even in the unintelligible utterances that appear to be unknown languages to us might have content beyond just mere ecstatic emotional experiences of the speaker. So they believe in what we perceive as nonsensical language, nonsensical sounding utterances. There can be a type of coded language with a hidden meaning that someone with the gift of interpretation can then interpret which would make it fit into the category of known language that is intelligible. It's just a coded language that no one knows. It's kind of a complicated argument, very technical argument. Um, but Carson does a little experiment in his book that I'm going to give to you now. So he starts by saying, um, suppose the message, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Have that message in your mind. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And he says, remove the vowels. And you get all of that without the vowels. I'm not going to go through it. Um, and this is him writing. He says, this may seem a bit strange. But we, when we remember that modern Hebrew is written without most vowels, we can imagine that with practice, this could be read quite smoothly. Now, remove the spaces. And beginning with the first letter, rewrite the sequence using every third letter, repeatedly going through the sequence until all the letters are used up. And so the result is a big jumble of letters that I'm not, it has no 
meaning to me, but just a bunch of letters. And then he says, now add an A sound after each consonant and break up the unit into arbitrary bits. And this is what you would get. And I'm not making fun of tongue speaker here. This is just his little code. But it would be something like patara ramana sabara dahara dafarasa'ala fasa'a kara'a kara'a. So, interesting, right? I'm totally unconvinced this is true, and it seems pretty imaginative, yes, Dave. I think, I think you're right. Um, to be fair, I think they would argue, at, maybe not Carson, but Charismatics would say, if it is a heavenly language or a language that the Spirit is speaking, then it is, it, it does have a coded, um, what's the word, you, design. We just don't understand what it is. Um, No, I think that's a very helpful distinction. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm, a, I'm confused by what you're referring to. Yeah, I just charismatics would say they are building up the church, so it's an, they wouldn't find that to be a helpful argument. <laughs> but I do agree with you. Um, but for Carson and and Poitras, they conclude. I think in a, in a more careful argument than, than charismatics that the phenomenon we see with modern tongues could fit in biblical categories because it, it could convey true information provided the interpreter knows the code of that language. So Carson uses an example of um, this, this coded language theory to a computer program language that that convey a lot of cognitive information, even though it's not a language anyone speaks. Although Andrea told me people do speak in computer language, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that that's a very interesting question. So Poitras goes into this in pretty great detail in an article I can send to you. Um, but they're really just talking about, like, it's possible. And so they're not really getting into what's actually happening. They say, this is just a possible of what's happening in the Corinthian church. Um, this, and that could line up with the modern charismatic understanding of tongues. Um, but I don't know. I think they would say the person with, that is, has the interpretation that is interpreting it must know the code. Or else how could you know the meaning of the, of the gibberish of the... Gibberish is a bad word. I don't know what else to call it. Um, does that make sense? Me too, but I find it fascinating. <laughs> um, again, I think it, it is an interesting theory. I find it pretty unconvincing. Um, and I do think Schreiner would agree that this coded type language that Carson is arguing about is possibly what is going on in the Corinthian church. That is a possible interpretation. Um, but I, as he, Shriner's just not fully convinced based on the evidence we see in Scripture, which is where we're going to turn to next is the Bible. Um, so let's move on to Shriner's analysis of the New Testament data, the very good stuff, to learn what the nature and 
function of tongues is. And so we're going to be looking in two places this morning for the rest of our time, just Acts, the book of Acts, and 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, which many of you all have already mentioned, which is great. So let's first go to Acts. The first mention of tongue speaking in Acts occurs at the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit on on Pentecost. So read with me. I'm going to be in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I think we see here pretty clearly that these Christians who were, were filled with the Holy Spirit began speaking in other human languages. We can see this pretty explicitly in verses 6 through 11 where we see in the text some Jews who, who were from every nation under heaven and they, they witnessed these new Christians who they knew spoke, spoke only, only one language, and they were speaking in a variety of tongues from around the world. So clearly then Luke has in mind that tongues here in Acts 2 were known human languages that were supernaturally given to those filled with the Spirit right on the day of Pentecost. And Schreiner points out that some have argued that the actual gift here in Acts 2 wasn't the, the gift of tongues, but, the, but um, rather the, of hearing, a supernatural ability to hear or, or interpret. But I think Schreiner argues, well, that is a pretty unnatural way of reading just the narrative of, of, the, of the text. Because in verse 4, it says clearly that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in different tongues. It doesn't say... Here, right, the spirit was tied to the speaking in the tongues. The, the gifting which we know is tied with the spirit wasn't the hearing of the language, but the, the actual ability to speak the languages. Also, more evidence. In verse 6, the text says, people heard them speaking in their own language. So the emphasis in the text of the gifting here is not on hearing, but of the speaking. So, Next question, what is the function of the gift of tongues in Acts 2? So Schreiner gives a, a theological function, and that is um, the gift of tongues in Acts 2 illustrates uh, the inauguration of the promised new covenant and the new covenant community, the church, where the gift of the Spirit is poured out on all who were in Christ, and all of them were members of the New Covenant community. Also, as this has been pretty popularly mentioned, but the tongue speaking at Pentecost functions as a, as a counter or a, a reversal to the events at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, which I think is a pretty neat connection a lot of theologians make. So remember in that story, God confused human language because of their sin, their, their prideful disobedience of wanting to be like God. And God caused, caused mass language diversity and confusion. 
At Pentecost, we see the reversal of this. And Schreiner says, we find understanding and communication among people of many different cultures. And this points to and anticipates the new creation that is coming. Schreiner also makes the point, and, and Michael Horton makes the point in his book, that the promise of universal blessing that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12.3, so remember that, that great promise, was becoming a reality at Pentecost. The gospel, right, is to, to or the, the blessing, the, the seed of promise is to all nations, it's to all tongues, it's to, to all languages. So the function then in Acts 2 of the gift of tongues is that the gift signifies all of these different theological fulfillments that were ushered in with the inception of the new covenant era, with the, with the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. The second time we see tongues appear is turn over to Acts chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius, which I've always really liked that name, Cornelius, but I can't name my kid that. It's just too, it's too odd. But So I'm going to read verses 44 through 48 of chapter 10. So while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So notice here, the, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Schreiner argues it's pretty clear here linguistically, Luke is referring to the same type of event that occurred in Acts 2. So the Gentiles spoke in tongues or languages, human languages that they didn't know. Further proof for this is found in Acts 11.17 when Peter was reporting the conversion of the Gentiles to the church, he says, God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us. It seems to me he's talking about tongues, right? And if it's the same gift, then it is a known human languages. The same gift meaning speaking known languages, as in chapter 2. And Schreider makes the argument that the function of the gift of tongues in Acts 10, 10 is similar to, to the function of, of it at Pentecost. In this case, Cornelius and his friends receiving the gift of tongues certifies that, that Gentiles who were not circumcised and did not keep the Old Testament law had truly received the Spirit. It was a testimony of their, of their regeneration and indwelling of the Spirit. And of course, at this, at this period in the early church, before the inclusion of the Gentiles, Jewish Christians would have been very suspicious, which we've, we see indicated in other places in Acts, like the, like the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But these Jewish Christians would have been very suspicious about whether uncircumcised Gentiles truly belonged to the people of God. 
So the gift of tongues, Schreiner argues, was given to the Gentile Christians just as it was given to the Jewish Christians. And the function was to leave no doubt that the, the Gentiles truly belonged to the people of God. This is the conclusion that Peter makes in chapter 10. He and the other Jewish Christians were astonished, right, that God poured out the Spirit or His Spirit on the Gentiles, but they knew that Cornelius and the other Gentiles received the Spirit because of what? How did they know that? Because they received the gift of tongues. So they conclude then that they should baptize the Gentiles and formally bring them into the New Covenant community. And just as an aside, notice here the New Testament precedent that baptism occurs after regeneration, after conversion, and after Peter and his, and his guys can, can affirm if the Gentiles' sal salvation is actual. So it's just throwing that out there for more Presbyterian-leaning folks. But in Acts 10, the, the, the function of the gift of tongues manifesting itself in Gentile Christians is to attest and to affirm they were actually a part of the new covenant people of God. Tongues proved they were enjoyed with the Holy Spirit. There's one more event of tongue speaking in Acts, um, which is the Ephesians 12 and Acts 19, but we're running low on time. It's pretty clear what's being spoken of is, is known languages here, there's very little dispute on that. And the function of the gift is, is very similar to the function of the first two instances. So let's move on quickly to, to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is a, the much more debated passages, disputed passages. Um, and we're not going to go through all of the passages for time's sake, but we're going to press into to a couple flashpoint passages. And more specifically, Shrine is going to highlight two passages that deal with the question of whether or not the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians is different than the gift of tongues in Acts. Um, but before we dive into Shriner's argument, I want us to consider something. I think this is pretty important. So remember last week, I made the argument that the burden of proof to prove um, their argument was on those who would consider Old Testament prophecy to be different than New Testament prophecy because there wasn't an explicit text in Scripture that states that point. So much in the same way this week, if you agree with Schreiner and the majority of New Testament scholars that tongues described in detail in Acts is referring to a supernatural ability to speak a known human language, then I think the burden of proof is on you to clearly prove that the gift of tongues is something fundamentally different in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul does not make it clear, and he doesn't make a clear distinction, that what was occurring in the Corinthian church is different than what was occurring in the book of Acts. So I, I think, this is just my opinion, I think the burden of proof to prove that something's different is on those who would say something is different. Okay. That is a word. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, so let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at verse 1. And we've mentioned this verse already. Um, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 for context. 
Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, many would say that this text proves that there is some other heavenly language, which Paul is referring to as, as the tongues of angels, which we, we've seen. And then they, they argue that the ecstatic utterances are actually a known language, but just not a human language. Remember this argument? It's the language of angels. But let's begin engaging this argument by hypothetically granting this position as true, or at least um, we can affirm hypothetically that there actually is a heavenly um, angelic language, which I think is definitely possible. Schreiner makes the point that even if the tongues of angels have to be interpret even even if there are tongues of angels they have to be interpreted and thus be must be in some kind of code to determine the meaning of the content so the the language has to be cognitive and the reason he gets there is again because of the greek word used here which is glossa remember glossa means either the tongue when you're in your mouth or Tongues as a, a language, and languages, a key to being a language, has to have some discernible code of communication, or it's not a language. And there have been many studies um, from linguists that, that study the modern phenomenon of, of tongue speaking, specifically in charismatic Pentecostal churches, and the vast majority of the results of those studies at least according to the, to the sources I was looking at, Carson, Packer, and Schreiner, is that linguists can't determine or discern a pattern that points to a code of interpretation, and therefore most of those tongue speaking that we see today, they're not translatable. Schreiner's point here is that if there was a language of the angels, we should assume that it is an intelligible language with coherent functioning codes because that is what the word in Greek, glossa, that is what the word means. And since what passes today as tongue speaking doesn't have any discernible code that links it to the meaning, then it doesn't follow that the tongues of angels would be unintelligible ecstatic utterances. Of course, this is when you can insert the, the Don Carson Poitras argument that I gave earlier, which is, which is to say, well, Unintelligible utterances may have no discernible code that humans can detect, but it is only discernible to God and those who are given the ability to interpret it. And I believe this is how many charismatics would, would argue against my point right here. The issue I have with that is that it's completely unfalsifiable. It, it literally cannot be proven, which doesn't mean it's, it's true or not, but it makes it very frustrating um, because it can't be proven. And so those who advocate for it might be right, but I agree with Schreiner when he, when he argues that it seems like an unlikely and even a, a forced conclusion from the text, especially verse 1 here. A second argument that Schreiner makes here in 1 Corinthians 13.1 
is that, again, even if we grant that there's the distinct tongue of angels, it isn't clear from the text that is what the Corinthians spoke. And that is because Schreiner and many others argue this, the, the, the use of the term tongues of angels, right, in verse 1, was most likely rhetorical. In other words, Paul is using the tongues of angels as a type of illustrative hyperbole. And Schreiner grounds his argument in what we see in the following verse, verse 2, where Paul clearly is making use of hyperbole. That's undisputed. Remember, hyperbole are, are statements that should not be taken literary, literally um, because they're, they're purposeful exaggerations used to make a point in an argument. This is a common rhetorical tactic of um, New Testament authors, including Jesus. Isaiah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And those would be heavenly languages. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so, hyperbole. Um, Paul, Paul does it also elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians. So we see in verse 2 that Paul says that the one who has the gift of prophecy understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Right, do you see that? Schreiner argues, obviously, only God knows all mysteries and all knowledge. So Paul's reference here is hyperbolic. And it is a likely conclusion that Paul is employing the same or similar rhetorical method in verse 1. I really like this argument. I think this is a good argument. Um, so a plausible interpretation of Paul is saying, it could be, if I spoke in the tongues of men and of angels, meaning if I spoke every language that exists on, on earth and as of, of heaven, right? Do you see the, the hyperbole there? Um, but had not love, then my gift is meaningless. So he's not saying literally there's a tongues of angels. At least that's one interpretation. That's mine. Um, I think that's a, a lot more likely conclusion that than tongues of angels means ecstatic utterances, which is a common interpretation. Okay, the better, the best argument, the better argument um, that tongues in First Corinthians is different from tongues in Acts comes from chapter fourteen of First Corinthians. And Schreiner states probably the best verse to go to if you want to prove that tongues is ecstatic utterances, which I still don't think this proves it, but the best one would be verse 2 of chapter 14, which states, For one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So folks will, will, will argue, no one understands him, that, that phrase, and Mysteries in the spirit refer to unknown, ecstatic, utterance-type languages. And another argument from chapter 14 that, that, that argues that tongues is different in 1 Corinthians than in Acts is that those in Acts understood immediately those speaking in tongues, and in 1 Corinthians, an interpreter is needed. So they say that there's a, there must be a difference. Other apparent differences is that in Acts, tongues is connected to prophecy, and in 1 Corinthians, it is distinguished from prophecy. In, first, in 14, verses 20 through 23, Paul says, tongues bring judgment, but in Acts 2, tongues is a result of people being saved. 
In Acts, tongues is used to proclaim the gospel evangelistically, but in 1 Corinthians, those who speak in tongues praise the Lord exclusively to edify believers in a congregation. Again, I think, I think these are, are, are bad arguments, or what I think are unconvincing arguments that people make regarding the differences of tongues in Acts and 1 Corinthians. And I would say that even if the function of the gift of tongues is different in the two in the two books, which I think it is different, the function of the gift, it doesn't necessarily prove that the nature of the gift is different, which is the next step people make in the argument. So in other words, could the gift of tongues play a different role in the Corinthian church than the book of Acts? I think the answer is yes. But even if that answer is yes, that doesn't prove that tongues then are unknown languages or ecstatic un utterances. I think that's a, they're making too far of a leap um, by showing the differences of the function of the gift. So the first response to the argument of the nature of the gifts being different, Schreiner says that 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5, isn't clear that Paul is talking about, it's just not clear, a natural reading of the text, it's not clear Paul is talking about unintelligible languages. Just because those in Acts understood the language spoken doesn't prove the gift of tongues is different here. It's clear, especially in Acts 2, that they understood the tongues because they knew the language being spoken. And Schreiner argues that the problem in the Corinthians case is that no one was present who knew the language that was spoken. At least I, that, that's the most natural way to read the passage. Thus, that's why an interpreter is necessary. So verse 2 in this context would still make sense even if it's a known human language being spoken in a corporate worship setting. I think you can still make the case that a known human language, if no one in the congregation understands it, is only uttering mysteries in the Spirit to God, as verse 2 states. Or another way to say this is, I don't think verse 2 proves that tongues must or, or even could be ecstatic utterances. I think this, it's, it's making too far of a leap. But many scholars do disagree with that view. Yes, Dave? I think so. No, I think you're, you're onto something. And no, I, I, I agree that I think that proves, it gives more evidence that what it's talking about is a known human language that no one understands. It's still, it's, in, it's what does he say, unintelligible. It can still be a huge, yeah. Um, is everyone tracking with my argument here? Okay, can I move on? Um, okay, I think this gets to the point about, an important point about the function of the spiritual gift of tongues in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's overall point in this section on tongues in chapter 14 is not to delineate the exact nature of tongues. Okay, I think that's key. He's not making an argument to, to argue what is the nature of tongues. I think he assumes prior knowledge of the tongues speaking in Acts, which is known human languages. And I think if he was talking about a fundamental change in the nature of the gift, he would be more explicit. That is, I'm, I, I am... Uh, that's a little speculative on my part, but 
I think it's, it's clear. Um, I'm going to move on from the 14 language or the 14 text just for time. Does anyone have any questions? We're going to come back to some of these passages next week. Um, any questions? Would you to, I'm sure there's arguments out there that would argue something to that. I don't find it convincing because that's just how language, that could be how the language works. That's, that's just how their language works. Yeah, which was occurring. Yeah. No. Do you want me to? <laughs> I can. So I think he's, uh, he is, uh, so right here, right, what is he doing in verse 14? He's trying, he's making the argument that prophecy is more important than tongues because it can edify the believers because you gain cognitive understanding. He's saying that, I think he's saying that to make the point, that doesn't mean tongues is useless. I wish I spoke it more than anyone. Or I do speak it more than anyone. And then he later will say, I wish. I think he's using it as a form of argumentation. He's not... He's just trying to make the point. He's trying to make the point that tongues is not me meaningless or useless. Tongues is still a gift of the Spirit that was given to the New Testament church. So I think he's using that language to show the importance of the gift of tongues. But there would be some that would then argue that everyone must speak in tongues, right? Everyone must speak in tongues because Paul said he wishes he could speak in tongues more than anyone. I think that I, that's not the point of what Paul is trying to do here. Good question. Okay, so that's my argument. There's more to the argument, but I'm satisfied with it. I think it shows what's occurring in 1 Corinthians 14 is the same thing that's occurring in the book of Acts. You can disagree with me, but I think it's kind of clear. But I do want to talk about quickly. If you take that argument as true, um, then the final question, much like last week, is what is happening with the modern phenomenon of tongue speaking in charismatic and Pentecostal circles? What is occurring? Um, and unfortunately, unlike last week with prophecy, which I felt like I did have a pretty good grasp on, I have no idea what is, what is occurring in this modern phenomenon of tongue speaking. But I'm going to give some theories. Um, I think answering what is actually occurring in these situations where, where, and I think we can all have a visual, hopefully, where folks enter a trance-like state and they're um, chanting unintelligible sounds. I think it's difficult. But I do want to say, I don't think it should be that surprising. It's been well documented that many pagan religions, such as Hinduism, uh, Native American languages, African languages, I mean, not languages, religions, Native American religions, African religions, um, have similar experience of trance-like chanting and odd utterances um, that resemble human language but aren't. So this should give us pause, I think, right? I haven't, I haven't thought this out as much as I would like, but I do think something can be said that there is something appealing to humanity of experiencing something like modern tongues. I'm going to say this very cautiously, but I do think some of what is happening in the modern charismatic movement is a satisfaction of this desire to experience an out-of-body, ecstasy-inducing spiritual experience. And I don't think that lines up to what, what we should expect spiritual experiences should be from reading the New Testament. So some would say what's occurring in the modern tongues movement is demon influence. 
or, or is evil. And I do think there, there, there probably is demonic influence in the pagan um, iterations of tongue speaking. But I would be, just be very hesitant, hesitant to say that is occurring in a community of Christians. I'm not saying none of Christian tongue speaking today is not influenced by demons, but we should be very careful, and it would be very hard to prove. And I think our expectation should be that, that demonic activity, specifically demonic possession, is not occurring in a community of believers. So I think we should be careful with that type of language, attesting it to true believers. Now, you can make the argument they're not really believers, but I'm not going to get into that today. So, Schreiner and Carson, um, who, I, who are heavily influenced by Packer, give an alternative. And it's not really an alternative, but a suggestion. I'm not that persuaded, but I'll try it out on you. And that is that studies have shown that modern-day tongue speaking is relatively psychologically beneficial for the people that are participating in it. Um, and the experience is a form of psychological relaxation that is beneficial to the participant. And they would conclude that they aren't doing something necessarily evil, so they're free to do it. Sharna would just want to distinguish very carefully that what is occurring is definitely not the gift of tongues. Packer, who I really like Packer the more I read him, um, but he argues what is occurring in the charismatic movement is definitely not New Testament tongues, but it seems to do more good than harm for people and has helped believers in their worship, prayer, and commitment, and he goes on to say, these experiences should probably be viewed as a good act from God that has no biblical warrants. I think that's funny. He likens it to the, the psychological relaxation one might get of singing to himself in the shower. Um, you know, it's just kind of, you don't know, you're not thinking about what you're doing, but it's just a form of, I guess, out-of-body type singing. <laughs> um, I think I disagree with Packer. But what I like about it is no one on this debate will like what he says, and I like a little contrarian. Um, but I'm skeptical of this view because of the well-documented kind of mechanistic nature of a lot of modern tongue speaking, where charismatics will try to coach you and teach you how to speak in tongues, like loosen your jaw, say these certain syllables, get into a spirit of prayer. To me, it all just seems so artificial that I personally am just very skeptical of what is occurring. And I do, and I've known people that are harmed by, try, by, by not being able to do this speaking in tongues where it really affects their spiritual walk. So I'm not as charitable as Packer or Schreiner. Um, I do think there's a lot of danger and damage that can be done from um, the modern charismatic understanding of tongues and forcing that on Christians. So um, we're out of time, but if you have... I mean, I'll take any comments, if you, any of your thoughts on that. Um, I'm, I'm still pretty undecided on what exactly is happening, but I'll just say I don't really, let me see how I should phrase this. Um, I'm fine with that. I do not lose sleep at night not knowing the psychological or spiritual state of people who think they're speaking in tongues. Um, I don't feel like I need to know exactly what is occurring in every situation. Again, I tend to be more skeptical. Uh, that what is, a, is occurring is an authentic spiritual experience, but you're free to disagree with me. I think the big key I want you to leave with today for a theological understanding of the spiritual gifts is that th my argument is that 
the gift of tongues in the New Testament is known human languages. It is not ecstatic utterances. And so next week I'm going to make the case then why I think that gift, along with prophecy, has ceased to function in our context. So until next week, y'all are dismissed. Thank you for all the comments and everything. Thank you.